also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello and welcome back to this free episode of Bottleman. I had a momentary. Free. Thank you. Don't do not start doing the thing Milo does on TF Dan. I will fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I think my exposure to Milo in Meat Space uh, uh, just kind of infected we, me with some of his texts. Free, free episode. That's right. I just got to get it well, out. Got to get oh, it out. No. Well, to hear. It's also in my contract as part of the the touring uh, the touring party of Johannes Vonk and the Clogheads <laughs> is to uh, adopt these particular well, texts. This, so, sorry, sorry, this, man. Well, a time was uh, this used to be my sanctum. Uh, no more. Um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's Bottleman, it's Riley and Dan, and we are joined by uh, Luke Savage, three time, I believe, returning guest. Now, our first guest from our first episode, as in fact, hell yes. Um, and uh, a man who, well, he needs no introduction, has uh, three things about him. Uh, he <laughs> <laughs> what are those three things? Um, well, he is uh, a staff writer at Jackman, of course, the host of the fabulous Michael and Us podcast, and uh, is the author of the forthcoming book, The Dead Center, about how I assume uh, that uh, sort of standard, uh, you might say, small C conservative uh, liberalism that appeals to uh, things like, you know, norms and procedures is on the up, up, up. It's rising like it's in the Dead Sea. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what the book's about. I don't think I need to talk about it further. <laughs> um, so we've got a tripartite, a, a, a tripartite group of hosts have a tripartite set of topics. Um, we've kind of done, we've kind of done like, a, Dan and I have both done like what we usually like to do. Uh, Dan has assembled uh, some excellent uh, Ukraine updates. Um, I have uh, compared the uh, various platforms of the uh, um, NDP liberals and Tories in Ontario and have pr- assigned them uh, ratings on the Stinkometer. Uh, and then uh, Luke <laughs> is going to be talking to us about the um, ongoing sort of great sucking vacuous hole in Canadian politics that is the Tory leadership debate. Love it. Yeah. So which of you gentlemen would like to kick us off? Uh, we need to do Ukraine. Uh, you crumble as the Tory leadership or you don't do enough you to address stink. the problems. Or yeah, you stink <laughs> as the uh, various platforms. Shall we start with I Ukraine? Could, I could start with Ukraine, yeah. Um, so this update is not going to be an update on the state of the war uh, because it is impossible to know how anything is going right now. And that's what that's what this update is about. Uh, it is about it is about a force field and black box of uh, around Ukraine for uh, information. Now, I heard from the Kiev Independent that um, uh, everyone uh, that, they, that every single uh, that the war was going very well. Yeah, you'll hear that a lot. Um, what you won't hear is things like Ukrainian casualty counts or uh, uh, testimony from journalists who have visited field hospitals or gone to the front because they're not allowed to. Yeah. Um, what about the status of, say, uh, certain of the hotels in Kiev? 
You will not, for instance, hear about how a uh, very fancy, maybe the fanciest hotel in Kiev was recently seized by uh, what was described by Seth Harp on the Radio Werner podcast recently as uh, many, many Ukrainian servicemen who put up banners saying uh, this hotel is now property of X battalion. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, which is which is kind of, I mean, when I heard that, I it, it definitely reminded me of our... Uh, our guest from pre-invasion, uh, our Ukraine expert, who described the sort of tangled web of uh, competing oligarchical influence that underpins all of domestic politics in Ukraine. And I'm, you know, I'm just assuming from Seth, uh, from Seth's reporting that that the vacuum created by uh, being invaded by a belligerent power has just made that worse. <laughs> so... Come on. Um, okay, so what what have you what have you uncovered in your uh, a little a little bit of an example of your delve into comparative media studies as an example of uh, the what you might call the uh, media uh, bubbles that we exist in. So so Seth describes sort of this uh, in in a way that no one else uh, I think that I've read recently describes this information black box around Ukraine. He describes, uh, you know, his phone being taken. He describes uh, not being able to get to the places that normal war reporting would reporters would want to cover, you know, like the front field hospitals. Um, And, and I kind of turn that lens on Canada. Uh, So what I really want to talk about here is the saga of a man from Quebec named Rolf and the national posts uh, reporting on him. So, these are two articles one month apart, uh, both written by Tom Blackwell. The first one dated April 5th. So the first one is titled Canadian infantry veteran enters, quote, living hell in Ukraine to capture village from Russians. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read a couple of uh, just a couple of pieces. It begins early one morning last month in an undisclosed area of Ukraine. Canadian in- infantry veteran Rolf headed off for what he thought would be a briefing with Ukrainian Rolf, officers. Huh? Yep. Keep that name in your head, fellas. Okay. <laughs> by the way, when you Dan, when you said the saw you were going to regale us with the saga of Rolf, I, I thought we were going to get like uh, I thought you're going to drop like some a 12th century Icelandic epic or something. So right, right. Maybe I'll ask that. A little question. disappointed. Maybe I'll ask that question now, guys. What is the what does the name Rolf as a nom de guerre make you think of? What do you think of when uh, you hear the word Rolf? Probably runes. Certain runes. Yeah. I think of uh, strength and Teutonic virtue. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think of purity, like the, like the purity of an icy glacier uh, in Norway, you know? Mm. Uh Uh-huh. I Um, think, uh, I think of um, uh, a guy who used to play black metal and now uh, gets mad on online that there are towns. It's it's well that it's funny because Rolf is uh Rolf is a port of, is is a Scandinavian uh descriptor for wolf um kind of like the name Varg. Oh, interesting. Just, so just keep keep that in mind. Uh so the article I won't read the rest of this but the article goes on to uh basically quote Rolf for a about three or four pages to him describing uh taking this village from Chechens and Russians um, getting shelled um, and commanding his Norman brigade, which is a uh, in the in the first article, it's kind of put out that the Norman brigade is just a normal group of um, international soldiers who are fighting on behalf of uh, the volunteer army and commanded by the Ukrainian military. Norman stands for normal man brigade. 
That's right. Normal man brigade. <laughs> yeah. But just a bunch of regular guys. Um, just a bunch of regular guys. Yeah. yeah regular absolutely. dudes. I'm sure that the questioning that Rolf from the Norman brigade who went to go on fighting in Ukraine got from the Canadian media was uh, uh, oppositional probing. It wasn't nope. surely just a whitewash of tell me about how it went. I will tell you that the word alleged uh, or claims shows up uh, almost zero times in this article. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So, um, the name of the group, uh, according to Rolf, alludes to the fact that many Quebecers are descendants of settlers from France's Normandy region. Um, they're entirely mili- uh, they're almost entirely military veterans uh, who were appalled by the invasion and reports of Russian war crimes. This is this is all recording according to uh, Rolf. So, let us fast forward one month. In the National Post, also by Tom Blackwell, incompetence or the realities of war, turmoil for Canadian-led foreign battalion in Ukraine. <laughs> Ex-members the- <laughs> say the Norman Brigade is badly run and under-equipped. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. The no- and, and the... the- But are we still sort of not asking any difficult questions about the Norman Brigade and why it's called that? Well, I think what happened here is that um, some of the people who joined Rolf's Norman Brigade and then immediately defected for reasons which will become clear once I read some of this article, uh, wrote the National Post and or Tom Blackwell to uh, set the record straight. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, what's, what's the outcome here? I'll start with a quote from uh, a civil servant who was the second in command of the brigade before quitting and leaving. (laughs) He is endangering the lives of unsuspecting young Canadians who just want to go and see combat. It is not right. It is completely irresponsible, especially for a person claiming publicly to be a commander. (laughs) 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 This person goes on to describe dungeon-like conditions in the training facility that Rolf set up and like a meager amount of ammunition. We're talking like he was handing out AK uh, or uh, sorry, Kalashnikovs with like 60 rounds of ammunition each. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> That's all you need. Um, he also gets criticism from several other sort of mercenaries, one of whom is from South Africa and refuses to give his name. <laughs> Okay, excellent. Uh, He was the subject of a song, I believe, Uh, but uh, please carry on. Yeah, Um, so this is my favorite part of the article. So Rolf, uh, the the, uh, battalion members who have quit describe Rolf coming to the training center, handing out seven or eight AK-47 assault rifles with a paltry 30 to 60 bullets per person, one of the one of the uh, volunteers from British Columbia said, on the record, uh, "This is absolute insanity. It is actual suicide. I mean, it's suicide when you're talking about fighting the Russian military." Mm-hmm. My favorite part of this, at one, and I'm reading from the article here. This is from the perspective of the uh, of the volunteers in in Rolf's Norman Brigade. At one point, they discovered that Rolf had a tattoo on his hand of a black sun, a symbol used what? by the SS in Nazi Germany, no, and sometimes come on. by neo fascist movements. Sometimes, uh-huh. sometimes. My, f- this is Paul and John. Sorry, sorry. Uh, how did how did Wolf <laughs> from the Normal Man Brigade end up with a black sun tattoo? Well, he's going to explain it. 
<laughs> but not not before uh, not before some more testimony from the uh, would would be uh, members of the Norman Brigade. This is from uh, Paul again. My friend James, who is there, literally spat on the ground in front of him and said, "This is everything our grandfathers fought against in the Second World War." But but Hroff said he has absolutely no neo-Nazi leanings and described his tattoos as runic, Scandinavian, and a mix of Indo-European and Japanese. He says he came heavily armed to the meeting at the base in case Russian paratroopers launched an attack behind Ukrainian lines. Where was the base? Uh, the base was on uh, front lines, basically. Oh, okay. All right. So it's not like he was so, like... So the, these, yeah, so the, so, these volunteers, so the, these volunteers, like, were probably. It's funny to think what they were probably picturing was going to be there when they arrived, like some like glorious medieval citadel. And then when they got there, they were like the fire festival attendees, like showing up, just a bunch of shitty tents with like, here you go, here's your sixty Kalashnikov bullets apiece, and uh, yeah, there's gonna be no food for three days. That is absolutely accurate. That's that's that that is spot on. So. Essentially, what you have here is you have a guy who uh, has, and in his own words, set up a brigade to defend Ukraine, my family and its values. But and this kind of this kind of relates back to something uh, Seth was talking about on the Radio Warner podcast. The whole idea of the International Battalion being an organized unit that has subunits is kind of bullshit. So basically, you do have an international battalion that is getting folded into parts of the Ukrainian military. But then at the same time, because uh, there's no sort of management or control over who's coming in or out of, it's very easy to get into Ukraine right now. You can just you get an American Canadian passport. You can walk across the border. That's creating the side effect of Rolfs, you know, just setting up private private militias. Um you know, one of the members of his battalion said it like this. He said he's trying to create his own private army to defend himself and uh, and his home. He's setting himself up as some kind of wacky Eastern Euro- European commander or warlord. So, I mean, when we, I, you know, I guess, when we empower a bunch of warlords uh, in alliances of convenience uh, against the Russians, that always goes well, uh, especially <laughs> when those warlords literally can just come back to Canada. Exactly. Exactly. And I guess my whole problem with this and the point of this piece is there seems to be a lot of acceptance at face value of the testimony of uh, people like Rolf. Yeah. You know, the Quebecois In Ukraine, guy that is Rolf. being presented as news called Rolf. Yeah. yeah. Called Rolf with a black sun <laughs> tattoo from the Norman Brigade. But he's just an enthusiast for what? Like William the Conqueror and his family from Normandy, and then also like what, like the Yamnaya and Sintashta Indo-European cultures. What the fuck? <laughs> like it's just it seems hey. to, you have to be so fucking credulous. <laughs> and well, he has he has strong democratic convictions as well. I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. Course. Oh yeah. Well, you know that symbol was. Uh, it's been around for a while. So. Yeah. It's it's how you vote. <laughs> You fill the Nordic black sun in next to the candidate that you want. <laughs> um, speaking of voting, uh, Luke, do you want to regale us with uh, all of the, uh, let's say, charisma powerhouses going at it like an episode of BattleBots uh, in the uh, Canadian PC uh, federal leadership debate? All right. So I confess, uh, I haven't yet had a chance to watch the uh, the debate that they held uh, the other day. Uh, I mean, I saw some clips. Absolute shit show. Um, I will say, I do think that this uh, conservative leadership race is more interesting for whatever that's worth than the other ones they've had more recently. 
Um, I mean, the backdrop to it in itself, I think, is pretty interesting. Conservatives, I suppose, to their credit, in a way, have um, developed a, a strong habit of turfing their leaders, even when, you know, and against some metrics anyway, they're reasonably successful. So conservatives have won the popular vote uh, in the last two elections in Canada, um, you know, and they've turfed both leaders. So they're now uh, they're now auditioning their, you know, their fourth leader uh, since 2015. Um, and, uh, you know, they lost the popular vote, I suppose, or they won the popular vote and lost the seat count, I suppose, partly because they're very heavily overrepresented in Western Canada. So it's like first past the post voting system, you know, you run up 80% in Calgary Southwest doesn't really help your overall total, but it does, uh, you know, it, it does stack up your popular vote. Um, but their past two leaders, I think have followed, uh, a really, I mean, they're basically cut from the exact same template in terms of how they won the leadership and then how they decided to run the party. And then I think uh, the reasons they were ultimately turfed as well. So uh, both Andrew Shear and Aaron O'Toole, uh, you know, ran ran on the right and, uh, <clears throat> you know, won the leadership basically by uh, taking advantage, sort of gaming the uh, convoluted sort of ranked ballot system that conservatives use. I don't actually fully understand it. It's like it's an instant runoff. So there are multiple ballots, but everyone only votes once and they kind of have like hours between each ballot to uh, make it seem more exciting than it is. Huh. Um, but but Sheer narrowly beat out Maxime Bernier, who, of course, went on to uh, form a you know far right party, which has not been very successful. Um, hey, whoa. <laughs> they were successful in recruiting a lot of Canada's most weirdest obsessives. That's true. They did. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, somewhere I, I have that Twitter thread saved of just like pictures of all the candidates and with their with their names. And I guess, uh, yeah, you know, the success can be measured in different ways. And by that standard, the People's Party of Canada has been a, has been a hit. Who else um, would have uh, would have elevated Brock Crocker to uh, to a national <laughs> fame? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's nice. They have got a lot of uh, they have got a lot of 4chan guys involved in electoral politics. You know, I like when young people get involved and, you know, engaged in in their communities. So you know, celebrate the them vote. for that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so so uh, sheer basically, you know, won over, you know, in most of these races and including the current one, there's always at least one social conservative candidate. Social conservatives uh, have, you know, they're they're very organized. I mean, they're never going to uh, elect like an out and out social conservative candidate, but they are usually able to get somebody uh, who is able to kind of use their later ballot votes, like allocate them to whoever the most right wing figure is. So that's how both O'Toole and Sheer won. O'Toole's uh, slogan was true blue. And as soon as he won the leadership, all of a sudden it was, well, actually, carbon taxes are OK. And um, just like Sheer, I'm going to sort of morph into this like, you know, suburban, suburban dad, this kind of like avuncular figure. I'm not going to threaten. Uh, I'm not going to threaten sort of like squishy, like, P, uh, you know, CPC liberal switchers in the in the suburbs. Um, and, you know, even, uh, you know, and uh, I guess, Dan, you went on Chapo to talk about this uh, in uh, last fall. But I mean, O'Toole did all that kind of like sort of faux workerist stuff. There was mm -hmm. like, you know, it was like conservatives are going to be the party of mental health, you know, and, and, um, <laughs> yes. uh, and it did seem like it was working for a while. Although, you know, as usual, there were a couple poison pills in their platform. I mean, somehow they didn't, uh, 
they, they forgot to take out the bit about, oh, yeah, we're going to bring back a bunch of assault weapons that are that were used in like mass shootings and stuff. Like, I think there was there was something that they were pledging. They're pledging to repeal a ban on a weapon that I think was actually used in the Ecole Polytechnique massacre. I don't think I'm inventing that, but um, the only way to, to stop to, another, to verify that the only way to stop another um, mass uh, like port of peak style thing is to make sure that everyone is as heavily armed as possible at all times. <laughs> yeah, it's like totally, totally insane. But like, so, you know, as a re- as a result of things like that and, and just generally being boring and uninspiring, you know, they they, they lost again. Um, you know, same parliament basically came out of 2021 that came out of 2019. Um, and this this race uh, so it was a long preamble, uh, all to say that this race is a little more interesting because. Um, the guy who is the front runner, Pierre Polyev, is the, is a is a type of ideologue that I think, um, you know, it's it's harder to imagine him doing kind of what Sheer or O'Toole did, um, you know, in terms of like running on the right and then sort of immediately pivoting to the center. I mean, uh, there's, uh, you know, and obviously I don't want to represent any of these people as moderates, but that's kind of the that's kind of the play. Polyev is the type of ideologue that like. He, he very much reminds me of sort of like campus conservatives that I met at U of T. Mm-hmm. Like he's into these really boutique conservative issues that are like, you know, he's got this huge YouTube channel, which like if you guys haven't checked it out, it's it's a joy. It's like <laughs> surreally weird content that you have to have like you have to have already absorbed like 100,000 hours of right wing YouTube, not to think it looks like Tim and Eric. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But but so like he's a he's a you know, he's a crypto guy, you know, he's uh he's he's not really a social conservative in the way that some of these other people are. So he's pro-choice and he's against, you know, conversion therapy and stuff like that. So um, you know, the Campaign Life Coalition, which is the big pro-life group, uh has has given him a red light. But in terms of his other commitments, you know, they're they're just what you'd expect from a, you know, a, a you know, a you know, career conservative politician, but he's just more open about them and he's more ideologically specific. So, you know, he calls like federal transfers to provinces, self-serving bureaucracy. He's called the welfare state horrific. He says that he wants to replace the entire, quote unquote, the entire welfare state with, quote unquote, a tiny survival stipend. Mm. Um, so, you know, he's he's a he's a hardcore fiscal conservative and he's into crypto. Uh, again, if you guys haven't seen it, I highly recommend uh, the, I guess, campaign event he did where he kind of theatrically bought shawarma with Bitcoin. Um, so that's that's what we're talking about here. And um, he's really overtaken all of the other candidates. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's he's clearly the front runner and he is turning out crowds. I mean, again, this is in Western Canada um, where they where the, the conservatives are strong, but he got 5000 people to come to an event, I think, in Calgary. And uh, none of these other people, including Jean Charest, who's the former premier of Quebec and is sort of running as like the the moderate in the race. Mm-hmm. Um, none of them, none of them are matching this kind of. Uh, I mean, just Polyev is serving red meat to the conservative base, and who knows what he'll do if he wins. But I, I have I have an inkling that he's less likely to kind of. Uh, pivot to the sort of boring suburban dad stuff. And so we might have a, we might, we might see an interesting situation where the conservative party sort of runs openly on the right. And of course it's an open question. What happens if they do? So, Cause I feel like what, what, what Polyev is doing is he's quite rightly sensing that the right in Canada has just become a cadet branch of the American right to the point yeah. where the only person oh, they yeah. really want as prime minister is Donald Trump. Um, 
And I mean, that's it, like all these people, like they're all Canadian MAGA people who just have no outlet for their uh, MAGA preferences. So who? Oh man, I, 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 yeah. Let me let me just interject yeah, there and say that the the free the Freedom Convoy people or whatever you call want to call them, like they they still go by my apartment every Saturday. Like they've been for years, right? They've had this like this march they do every Saturday, and it, it gets bigger, it gets smaller, whatever. But one of the things you notice about it that's really striking is how many of their, their reference points are clearly American. Like, yeah. there's there's QAnon people there. There's, there's like, like they're mad that, you know, the Democrat, the pedophile Democrats stole the election from Trump. Like, a lot of this shit is internet-based, and that, by definition, means that a lot of it is just coming coming from the United States. And so well, I, I had, feel, I had that experience in, in Quebec last summer with a, with a March that went by the studio that I was working at. And, you know, I went out on the porch to look at it and I'd say, yeah, 25, 30% of all the banners were, um, very QAnon specific. And about half of them had to do with American politics and nothing to do with Canadian politics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, even it's, weirder it, in Quebec, <laughs> you know, because these signs were in fucking French. So, well, I mean, it's also they're they're uh, recognizing that like Canada's ability to like set its own political agenda is very limited by you know by our just proximity to this gigantic black hole of America. It's just that it's 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 all it's also the case that on the on the right in Canada, it's a long standing thing going back to sort of the transformation of the right in the nineties, where you know. The, the old PC party was sort of displaced by the Reform Party, which then later as the Canadian Alliance kind of absorbed it. Um, that was heavily American influence. Like the mm-hmm. progressive conservatives, you know, from the Mulroney era and before were not, you know, they didn't have uh, the same level of American influence. And so in the 90s, I mean, them and the Mike Harris Tories and uh, I suspect Ralph Klein as well, although I don't know about that. And in, in Alberta, you know, they brought in a lot of these U.S. advisors, like so people that were associated with like the Gingrich uh, revolution and and you know uh, and that that kind of stuff. And so there is like a very direct American influence. Like honestly, I, I think it's it's on it's analogous in some ways to like how you know uh, if you were like I don't know a leftist in the 1920s or something like like what the Soviet Union like would have meant to you or something like that's mm-hmm. what that's what uh, the United States means to the American right. I remember during one of the Manning conferences, which was like it's like the big right wing gathering um, uh, now now defunct right wing gathering, but it's in Ottawa. Uh, one of the years Ron Paul was a keynote speaker, the conservatives were in government at this point. So it's probably 2014, 2015, something like that. And Ron Paul came to the House of Commons and he was sitting in the gallery and you could see all of these like conservative cabinet ministers, like the people running the government of Canada were like, they were so visibly nervous. Like they're all anxiously looking up at like, oh my God, Ron Paul is here. I don't want to like look the fool. Uh, And I feel like that's very emblematic of how like, they, they really see them like Canadian provincialism extends to like even the most feral parts of the right in Canada where like they see they see themselves as like the 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 embarrassed sort of like little brothers who are playing catch up with, you know, the uh, the the U.S., you know, behemoth. And like mm-hmm. that's especially a problem in a post Trump world, because, you know, I, th- I think aesthetically and ideologically, the Trump thing, you know, is just not as saleable in canada mm. as as it is in the united states and so but that, you know, the, that's why you get the culture were the culture were elements of it are so you get this weird yeah you, I, I mean i definitely noticed that a, a few of these marches that i saw in quebec but you get this 
the culture war is the easiest uh the easiest way to participate in what you think is politics Mm. and all of that is being directed by the united states none of it is being created here in canada and so like it's it seems like like polev is the only one of the tory candidates who's kind of at least realized that well, I, th- I think he's realized that there's, especially in the context of a, a leadership race, that there is a clear advantage. Um, and I mean, just also, you know, politics in general have been so kind of depoliticized and like strained of strained of sort of, um, you know, visible ideology in some ways uh, that, you know, he's 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 seen that there's a clear advantage to just like ideology red and tooth and claw and you know it's an open question whether that'll work if he becomes you know a national leader but you know i certainly understand why if you're a tory member um you know really from from any part of the tory coalition that's going to be more engaging to you than like what a lot of the other candidates are doing which is closer to kind of like this more standard stuff we've seen in in past tory leadership races it's like it feels like he's he's at least getting that to that like the sort of main valence of you know politics other than like that's actually materially transformational to people is is it fun to feel like a part of your favorite tv show and yeah. you know i think a, a lot of people in Amer- a lot of politicians in america have kind of understood that where like you know that's sort of that's sort of what that's that's kind of what Boris Johnson was offering in the UK is you can feel like a part of Brexit, your favorite drama on TV. You know, you were part of the team that delivered it. You know, you you get to feel you're yeah, in the, on the action. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, and that speaks so much to what the appeal of the right is again, post in a post Trump world is, you know, the right in many ways. I mean, it is, I think, as sclerotic as, you know, the the, the liberal center is, uh, except that, you know, unlike centrists, the right understands uh, that, you know, politics can be can be fun. Um, I think it's the, the British writer Richard Seymour talked about this in relation to, you know, Johnson and, and uh, Bolsonaro as well, and obviously Trump. Uh, you know, the, the right is what the right offers is that it, you know, it democratizes enjoyment. So politics is still a spectacle. It's ridiculous. You know, we're not going to make we're not going to have serious expectations of the political class. There's not really uh, very few people on the right, I think, are are all that serious. But, you know, they don't have uh, they don't have sort of a, a, a blueprint necessarily for uh, a transformation of society, or if they do, it's 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 a combination of window dressing or just the same agenda the right's had for decades. But what's new and what's novel is is this you know uh, you know you can get a piece of this you know you can you can have fun. There's this like spectacle now um, that 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 yeah you can be you can be a part of, and it's it's rude and it's mean and it's nasty and it triggers the libs, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. what the appeal of this stuff is. And and Polly. Yeah, whatever else you could say about him certainly triggers the lips. And I yeah, guess like, it goes the- back to spite. You know, what's something we've talked about a lot on this show is is just owning the other side has become uh, incredibly important and meaningful to people because it's like, the only lever they have to pull. But to what extent, like, is to what extent, like, is that uh, is that going to be able to like deliver Canada, especially because we don't have the kind of open party structure that the Republican Party had that enabled them to, because if you remember, they wanted nothing to a lot of the, the uh, anyone who controlled the sort of gateway to the party, or at least the vast majority of them wanted nothing to do with the guy who's now 
become like the personal god king uh, of that whole movement and who mm-hmm. actually glued a lot of people to the Republican Party basically forever. Well, this is this is an important point that I should have made before, actually. I mean, it, it's it needs to be said that Polly Everett is, you know, d- just in spite of everything I said, he is as establishment a figure as you can, you know, as you could possibly have in, in the conservative party. He was elected at age 25 in 2004. So he was like, he was he was there before even the Tories formed government. I don't think he was ever in cabinet. He was a parliamentary secretary. Um, but, you know, in terms of his endorsements, I mean, it's it's this isn't the, you know, Riley, what you were just talking about in terms of like the Republican establishment putting up barriers to to Trump. I mean, that's not what's happening here. You know, he's, Polyev's been endorsed by Andrew Scheer. He's been endorsed by John Baird, who was the foreign minister under Stephen Harper. He has he has way more endorsements, I think, than any of the other figures. And last time I checked, although it's been some weeks, there might be more. He had something like a third of the parliamentary, the Tory parliamentary caucus uh, backing him. So, you know, it's, you know, the ideology is coming from inside the House. You know, this isn't this isn't like a hostile takeover at all. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I mean, right, is that is that I don't sort of I I don't look, I don't make predictions. Uh, I think making predictions makes you look stupid when they inevitably don't come true or something completely unexpected happens and your predictions irrelevant um but like i don't really understand how um i don't understand how barring some sort of great kind of media level air war sea change or um or something like this i don't really see how you create the kind of faction that was it was in, in the U.S. and 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 the U.K. There are the places that have a united, strong, and powerful right, and in both of those cases, what they've done is fuse near religious devotion to projects and individual, identifiable, radical projects like Brexit or Trumpism or whatever these these great changes that were supposed to liberate you that ended up becoming like all anyone could talk about. Um, mm-hmm. that were like basically in, in, in Trump's case, that was just like super famous in the EU's case, this thing that slowly over the course of decades, it took decades to become this like crazy obsession among, among the right. Like none of the, like I, I don't see the Canadian right getting a God King or I don't see what their Brexit is yet that will that will suck up all of these um, uh, sort of disenchanted voters that everyone else has left behind. I, I don't doubt that they're capable of producing one. I just don't see it yet. I mean, it would it would certainly be unprecedented. I mean, if you think about like it would require, as you said, a sea change. I mean, if you think about the conditions that preceded Stephen Harper's rise to power in 2006, I mean, first of all, Harper did not win a majority until 2011. He won a pretty small minority in 2006. And that was in the context of, you know, uh, liberals being in power since 1993, uh, completely scandal plagued because of the sponsorship scandal, uh, you know, which which. Paul Martin, the liberal prime minister, was directly implicated in. Um, and then for, you know, most of the you know, times the Tories were in government, um, they exercised rigid message control. I mean, again, they weren't a moderate government. I don't want to exaggerate, but I mean, they weren't, you know, they 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 didn't, for the most part, pursue the kind of hard right agenda that I'm sure a lot of their members and, and MPs wanted to. And that's because... Uh, 
you know, it's very difficult to build a governing right wing coalition in Canada. You have to win over Quebec somewhat and you have to win over the I mean, the 2011 majority came because they they flipped all these liberal voters in the GTA, Uh, holding that together with the much more, I I would say, in general, more right wing uh, constituencies in Western Canada. Like it's it's pretty difficult. And so the all the all the incentive uh, structures in national politics and federal politics, rather, all of the pressures, if you're a Tory leader, are to sort of take the base for granted and then to just try to soften your message to win over these like voters in the GTA in particular. And it's a really difficult balancing act. Um, And so if Polyev was to attempt a much more sort of openly ideological uh, right-wing course, it would be unprecedented. And yeah, I mean, I'm also wary of making predictions, but my instinct is that uh, he would be leaning into the thing that tends to help liberals win elections, right? Which is just, you know, liberals tend, often they don't have to do anything except fearmonger about uh, the right. And uh, that's usually, you know, that can, that's often been enough for them to, to win. Uh, So my instinct is that could quite easily happen and, and again. again. It could easily happen again. And something could easily change, right? Like it just, it, do you know what it is? I think it would be very, but in order for that to change, right? Like the, the pattern that we've seen is that you need to make it about either the guy and he becomes like the world's most famous, amazing guy, or you yes. need to make it about this live or die, can't fail project. And with mm-hmm. barring a project, that means that at some point in the next like couple of years, uh, Pierre Pierre Polev is going to have to like be made into like this uh, god emperor character, which I think would be uh, very funny if that happens. Same. I mean, you can only do so many photo shoots in front of the giant nickel in Sudbury. You know. <laughs> well, fuck. That's the thing. I mean, we should we should uh, we should move on to the next thing. But I mean, that's like one other thing I would say about Paulie Ever is that like. A lot of the shit he does, like, you know, again, I will reiterate, people should check out his YouTube channel, because if you're not already immersed in the very strange and sort of like kitsch milieu that is right wing YouTube, like it's it's like fucking it's cosmically weird. It's It's, so strange. It's like people who understand the Internet because they're on it all the time, but don't understand that what they are doing, like the the that what they are doing is cringy. And like you said, uh, very, very surreal and almost Tim and Eric like, but they're doing it with a straight face. You know? Yeah, and, and all the all the issues too are like these uh, things that I mean to me anyway are sort of boutique issues that sections of the right talk about in this sort of arcane language. Like Polly Evera talks about inflation all the time, and you know he talks about cryptocurrency, and I guess how we're going to use cryptocurrency to allow people to opt out of inflation, and you know it's all all this kind of monetary policy stuff that I feel like you know, campus conservative clubs are obsessed with and like, yeah, right wing YouTube is obsessed with. But like, how do you translate that into a sort of popular language that you could use to win over like normal voters who aren't immersed in that stuff? I I don't know. You stand in front of the giant nickel and uh, you do something incredibly memeable, memeable, you know, <laughs> That's right. We're replacing possibly the, without knowing it. We're replacing the giant nickel with a giant Bitcoin. Yes. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about a little bit of something because we have an Ontario election coming up as well. And um, it's very strange reading the um, reading the proposals, right? Because number one, um, 
you have to like uh, I'm going to rate these on two dimensions, uh, which is the stinko meter, but also the uh, will it happen o meter. These meters are still being named copyright. Um, <laughs> but uh, where like it seems so odd, but having read the sort of the, I read the three sort of platforms. Um, or at least the set of promises the Tories have released um, versus the liberal and NDP platforms. And the liberal and NDP platforms, and uh, Lucas, I hope you could shed some light on this, by the standards of Canadian political documents, assuming that they will do what they say they will do, which we know is a gigantic fucking assumption that almost certainly won't be borne out, at least not for most of it. But just in terms of the documents themselves, it's just engaging with the reality that everything is too fucking expensive needs to get cheaper and that you need to do something that will actually work to make it cheaper seems sort of in a different fucking planet than their federal counterpart budgets or their other provinces even um Mm -hmm. like the like there are like the um for example like the the ndp for housing like listeners of this show will know that housing is my go-to issue because i say because as i as I, there is because you can have a billion fudges for housing that will make it look like you're doing something or you could do one of the very small number of things that will work like for example creating a body to oversee and deliver um, this publicly owned public housing on a public basis. And I, I think I stood up at my computer when I saw that the NDP in Ontario were planning, for example, to create Housing Ontario, which would do something kind of like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like it's a reflection of a number of things. I mean, uh, partly it's just a reflection of how bad things have gotten. Like if you want to reach people, like you kind of have to promise to make their lives, you know, more, more livable. I mean, the cost of living, especially in major cities is just like everything, the cost of groceries, the cost of rent. Um, I mean, in Toronto, I mean, the skyline of Toronto looks completely different. I moved here in 2008 and I mean, every five years it just transforms and, you know, it's all these new condo buildings. And just like in a lot of other major cities, I mean, Riley, you're in London, so I don't have to tell you this, but I mean, so much of real estate, I mean, you know, these are speculative assets, right? Like a lot of these are not, they're not lived in or, or people do, you know, rent from them, but then, uh, you know, they're actually owned by somebody else. So you have like all these kind of petty, petty landlords, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a mess and, you know, it's, it's like just, it's what happens when you treat housing as a commodity for such a long time. And then you also have, you know, a cost of living crisis, um, to, to go with that. So that's part of it. I mean, in terms of the actual platforms, I mean, I think the liberals, uh, most of kind of what's novel about their platform can be explained by the fact that they're, you know, they're a third party after they were the government for, I mean, they weren't, they weren't so much a government as they were a regime in Ontario. They're in power for such a long time. Um, you know, they, they're just, they're trying to, you know, they're doing kind of radical centrism, you know, they're throwing out these kind of things that are very memorable. I mean, some of them, like they have their own, the PCs had buck a beer last time. They've got this <laughs> buck a ride thing they're doing, which like political messaging, it's, it's smart, right? Cause it stays with you. I mean, how they're actually going to do it, um, or, you know, I've, or whether they are, would actually do it. I doubt it. They got this like just dull as ditch water leader, Stephen Del Duca. He's this like balding sort of business liberal. Um, so they're doing everything they can just to get noticed. In terms of the NDP, I mean, uh, I, I feel like I don't have a good explanation for why uh, the platform is better than a lot of the stuff you've seen from provincial parties elsewhere. I mean, I, I do think on paper, at least it is more ambitious than like 
say the BC NDP mm-hmm. or Alberta NDP. Um, of course, the you know track record of I mean the one the five year period where the Ontario NDP was in government. I mean they did a few good things, and then they I mean their big uh, betrayal was, was of course on this public auto insurance which they promised to bring in, and they and they completely abandoned. So. Uh, you know, that's uh, it's an open question, you know, how the NDP would actually govern Ontario. But, um, you know, my own involvement in the Ontario NDP, I mean, I was I was a candidate for the Ontario NDP in 2014 um, in with in a time where the platform is very different. Right. It was uh, 2011 and 2014, much more this kind of like more transactional sort of pocketbook style politics, like, you know, tax credits, that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, for reasons that are uh, not entirely clear to me, there's been a, a move back towards, uh, you know, a type of platform that I think is much more the consensus among, you know, NDP members, much more sort of like broadly social democratic and and much more willing to embrace these, um, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, big programs and, and initiatives and stuff. I mean, what's still missing for me is, is the sort of class war element i mean it's mm-hmm. like it's sort of social democracy paired with more more traditional um sort of professional electoral politics and maybe once in a while that gets the ndp over the line in a province but uh you know i think f- for me the way you 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 run a you run a pl- on a platform like this is is uh you know, you, you run, you run angrier and you, you know, you attack the elites and, and you attack the, you know, you attack big business and feel like, uh, you've seen that a little bit rhetorically, but, um, not as, uh, you know, it's not as, uh, it's not as animated as it, as it might be. Mm. Yeah. Cause I see this, like, like, as you say, like the, the, the liberal, the liberal platform is like, again, it, 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 it certainly, um, it, in, I think it by engages with people materially a little more than the federal liberal platform, which was notable because it's making things cheaper, looking at ending two tier rentals by like expanding rent control and stuff like this stuff you wouldn't expect to see in a liberal platform, but ultimately nothing transformative. But like the just seeing that that actually engaging with the idea of that that there are rents that are going up that are going up by too much is something that is very surprising. Um, and by and and wanting to combat that in any way other than just building more houses and upzoning stuff, um, is is was is, is sort of quite quite interesting to see. I agree. The NDP, the, obviously, the the NDP platform here is more um, ambitious. Uh, it, it's I mean, it, it's so weird. It strikes me like there are little bits of it that look like 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 a couple of like the labor platforms under Corbin, like not obviously not the whole thing. Uh, and those were imperfect documents as well. But like the ambitions for the minimum wage uh, increases, the permanent sick days, the moving forward, the four day work week pilot. Um, these the or are, are, are like actually fine financing public house financing and building publicly publicly owned housing these are things that reminded me of a time when i was you know much more optimistic about politics now that said it wouldn't be an ndp um uh document so these are so these are the policies that are low on the stinkometer and high mm-hmm. on the won't happen meter mm-hmm. um <laughs> uh, uh weird how those two meters are related <laughs> so so riley was, yeah. was that uh, the liberal platform you were just describing oh, or was that the sorry. ndp platform that was the, 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 the ndp platform the liberal platform just like seemed like it at least engaged with more material realities in people's lives, which is at a real 
distinct a difference a real distinction from the federal liberal platform which just says you love it you love the more, the more I <laughs> the more I think about this the more I the more I think I am surprised that it took them this long to even acknowledge it because you know if this goes on for another two years three years it's it's going to be torches and pitchforks time you know <laughs> people are going to start talking about where they can buy a pitchfork and who has the kerosene <laughs> yeah actually i mean this is this is a digression but i uh you know i check in on the national post you know our, our good friends the national post every so often where uh you know, you really get to you really get to see like the mind, like what, 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 where is the imaginary of like Canada's you know capitalist class? Like where are they at? You know, the really ideological capitalists where are they at? Where are they at? And they had a piece from uh, I guess Frank Stronach a few days ago, where basically his argument was like capitalism isn't working, and that's like a problem for us because people are going to get mad. You know, they're going to raise <laughs> our taxes and uh, you know that kind of thing. So when you start to get that like conscious acknowledgement of of that sort of thing from um, from leading capitalists. I think it's, I think it's very, uh, I think it's very telling. I think, yeah. I think actually people have not, I think the political culture and sort of environment has not really even caught up to the fact of how, how bad everything is and how much uh, simmering anger there is, which, you know, uh, we were talking about Pierre Polyev before, uh, you know, potentially gives uh, someone like him more more room to maneuver, particularly uh, if there isn't you know a strong alternative on the left. Well, it's it's that he has to become the avatar of that anger, which he needs. Like I don't know, I think he needs to he he needs to get a lot more like fun and a lot less um, uh, sort of smug and dorky. Um, but uh, so the, the uh, but so to be clear, yeah, the the, the liberal platform as I was talking about. There is some more material engagement than just you love it. The NDP platform, there are little bits of like the Labor 2017 and 2019 manifesto kind of sparkling through, but I don't think they'll actually do them. Uh, I'd love if they actually did them. I think that would be great. Um, I think it would be great if you had Housing Ontario that would like at least finance and build non-market rental homes that were not operated by um, that were operated by public housing providers. That would be great if that happened. It would, it would it be enough? No, because only want to build a quarter million homes. That's not nearly enough homes, but it's the actual reorganization of powers that is meaningful, which is also why they won't do it. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, the 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 actual, uh, you know, it, the platforms are remarkably, you know, detailed, uh, especially when you consider how uh, how elections are like actually fought and kind of how you how you almost have to fight them, which is like, you know, I've canvassed many times in Ontario, I've canvassed uh, during this election, actually. And like, I mean, maybe this is just my downtown Toronto experience, but like, I cannot stress enough how how little i mean there's a type of voter that both in federal elections and provincial elections is like really uh i mean they are like the kingmakers particularly in terms of like swinging votes between the liberals and the ndp and they are single issue voters and it's not even really an issue that they have it's not housing it's not healthcare it's not anything like that it's literally just they're any they're anything but conservative voters and so just like in federal elections, Ontario elections very often become these like absurd meta debates where like, you know, all this stuff, you know, there's all this stuff we could be talking about. And instead, 
uh, it's like dueling, uh, dueling narratives about like, well, hey, we're winning or hey, no, we're winning. And like, if you can establish yourself, basically, I mean, the 2018 election in Ontario where the NDP came in second and it looked like for a while was on course to win. Um, you know, so much of that has to do with just like these small P progressive voters will swing to the liberals or the NDP, uh, depending on, I mean, they will like look at these like strategic voting websites, they will look at the polls and that's kind of just how they decide how to vote. Um, and, uh, it's, it's really frustrating. And I feel like neither like professional NDP strategists nor people on the left have like successfully, you know, like left-wing activists or whatever, um, who don't work as strategists. No one's actually figured out like a really effective way for cutting through this. It's, it's very, it's very difficult. <laughs> so I suppose that at least uh, that whoever, who, I, I, I guess the, it, the, the goal, I suppose, is to make the argument about who's winning be about who can provide public housing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it, nobody's tried to do it, um, in a kind of holistic way, but I mean, there are individual people that's doing it. I mean, Joel Harden, who's, uh, you know, open socialist MPP for the NDP in, in Ottawa. He's been doing some great videos for his campaign that are, you know, where the message is basically like the people who are making your rents go up, you know, the people who don't want us to fight climate change, like they don't want us to win. They're working against us. You know, yeah. that's that's the that's the right kind of message. And and, you know, ultimately that if there is a way to cut through this, uh, this kind of fog of war. Um, you know, that's how to do it. Um, but it is it is very difficult. Right. I mean, thinking about labor in 2019, uh, you know, their whole strategy was about like cutting through the culture war with these uh, with with, you know, this kind of message. And be, I mean, obviously, Britain had its own specificities around Brexit and, and stuff, but like it, di- it didn't work. Right. The strategy didn't work. Sometimes like the culture war is is very, very powerful. And, you know, the 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 sort of voter dynamic I was just describing where, you know, there's all kinds of people who are basically keep the conservatives out people. I mean, that, that is an extension of, of the culture war in many ways, because for a lot of people, their only point of engagement with politics is that it's a binary. And on one side, you got the forces of like diversity and equity and, and, and inclusion. And then the other side, you got, you know, parochialism and, and, you know, MAGA light and all, all, all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, cut, cutting through that is uh, really difficult. And, you know, you even even like more refined and kind of populist left wing messages have actually, you know, in, there's recent examples of them failing in the face of that. I mean, you could make an argument that some version of that, you know, sunk Bernie as well. So, you know, no one's uh, no one's exactly figured out the formula here, although I do think, um, you know, the sort of uh, the sort of angrier uh, populist messages that we've seen from, you know, Bernie and, and, uh, and the labor party, uh, is, is more, I mean, that's, that's certainly, uh, certainly in the right direction. And of course, uh, before 2019, he had 2017 where the message did work. Hmm. Well, and also what I'm thinking of, right, is regardless of sort of messaging, right? Well, what do they, if you think of the platform as the easiest way you can think of as, well, what do they want to do? What, what direction are they pointing themselves in? And I think, okay, well, they have sort of in, in some in at least some official election material they've sort of acknowledged that they at least plan to create a kind of body that will meaningfully decommodify at least some housing um which to sort of is is my constant bugbear is who is who is able to at least engage with that idea at a, at an outset yes um 
Oh yeah, and and the other thing too, right, is that like if you can if you can run on a platform where you promise to do something like that, and then you actually do it, I mean, the effect that would have on you know wh- whatever electorate gets to experience the benefit of like a decommodified public good, um, I mean, that, it's gonna be it's gonna be completely transformative. And a- actually, uh, something really striking that I heard about the um, from I guess I think it was. Uh, Faiz Shaheen, who was a Labour candidate in London, I think she was running against Ian Duncan Smith. Mm-hmm, that's right. Um, something, something she said on Navarra after the election, um, if, if I'm remembering correctly, was one of the things she encountered at the doorstep uh, canvassing for Labour was that a lot of people uh, would sort of say, you know, uh, one of two things, both of which were related. One was they didn't think they deserved the Labour platform, right? It's like, do I really deserve all this free stuff? And the other uh, was you know, well, all that stuff would be good, but, you know, I, I really, you know, that's not possible. That's just like, you know, pie in the sky shit. And I think both of those are related uh, instincts and they're born of sort of 40 years of the retrenchment of all of these kind of things and, and the neutralization of a type of politics that can bring about, um, you know, concrete material improvements in people's lives. I mean, from the, from the 1930s and 40s, you know, through to the 1970s, where you know there was a major kind of crisis of global capitalism that sort of undid Keynesian social democracy. I mean, there was just like almost a straight line in many countries because people getting, uh, you know, people getting, people experiencing the welfare state, people experiencing decommodified public goods, actually didn't make them complacent for the most part. I don't think. Um, I mean, at least not politically. Like. There was uh, just a, a, a growing expectation that politics exists to bring us higher living standards. Like my life needs to get better each year. I need to see my wages go up. I need to have a, a pension uh, that's that's getting bigger every year, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, all of that is to say that if in one <laughs> If in some jurisdiction somewhere, some major jurisdiction, you could elect a left wing government and it was actually able to do even like a fraction of of, you know, uh, this kind of platform, the effects of it, I think, would be absolutely transformative because you'd be showing people that uh, this kind of thing is possible. And then, you know, they would be experiencing, uh, you know, the state having uh, a positive role in their life and and electoral politics and you know political parties uh you know actually you know delivering something which is just for the most part uh something that uh you know very few people uh, especially you know people under 40 have really ever experienced like when i think about has there been an election that yielded something that materially improved my my life like uh i'm struggling to i'm struggling to think about it mm. uh, think of an example well if you were an ad agency and you worked in Quebec in the late 1990s, <laughs> <laughs> if you if you worked at if you worked at the uh, popular uh, uh, construction outfit SNC Lavalin, yeah, the uh, exactly. family-run outfit, uh, exactly. I think, like, the your thing life is, was materially improved. I think this this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, right? Like, what has forced the liberals to make a a, a sort of platform of that the gimmick like largely sort of gimmick or sort of small potatoes policies but that actually engage more meaningfully with people's like material conditions than their that their federal counterparts what has made the ontario ndp do the same thing but like 
fewer gimmicks, more substantive stuff, again, than their BC or federal counterparts. Uh, and, and again, like still a very, uh, fl- like a, not just a flawed document. Like there's a lot of stuff, but it's pretty high in the stinko meter here too, including the total absence of any acknowledgement that like drug legalization is urgently necessary to save lives and keep people out of jail. No acknowledgement to that at all. But I think that what you were talking about is at least on stuff like housing and certain bits of afford- what's broadly being called affordability, They've basically been dragged into it. And I guess there were just more people who were more temperamentally willing to get dragged a little bit further by events on the NDP. But there's other thing that's, that I want to bring up, right? Is that there is that it's like, that's just still like, and, then, and again, why I'm, I'm not willing to be like, I, as the fucking podcaster, endorse you know, these people for your vote, which is essentially that like all of these are still top down. None of this is a bottom up or at least as as bottom up as the like labor manifestos were in 2017 and 19, which was less top down than usual, basically. Um, but these these are essentially uh, top down solutions uh, imposed by elites to uh, essentially uh try to make social reproduction keep happening when it was and, and sort of the insane levels of unaffordability in Ontario are as you said Dan threatening to generate a torch torches and pitchfork situation yes it it really does seem like something that's top down and born of sort of an ambient uh ambient growing unrest that is impossible to ignore like your head you're trying to have a nice dinner party with your friends and talk about how hard it is uh to rent your uh three or four airbnb properties to tenants willing to pay three and a half thousand dollars a month to live in a shoebox and someone is just pounding on the door outside so you keep turning the music up and up and i think uh i think that's kind of reached a breaking point and and that's why we're seeing these that's why we're seeing these documents. I mean, if that's what it takes, I think it's going to take more than that. Because um, like Luke was saying, you can have to have some kind of leadership at the party level, uh, even at the small sort of regional level that that is going to get people to unlearn uh, this idea that they're they don't deserve <laughs> they don't deserve social housing or they don't deserve their pension to go up, you know, there has to be some deprogramming. Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 a problem to get political parties to do this because, of course, you know, the whole I mean, and it's a problem that any political party, I think, in pretty much any context, except one of like, you know, one verging on social revolution has, which is that like, you know, in, in modern electoral politics, like in, in you know, ma- the mass democracy that we've known for the last roughly 100 years, so many of the incentives are short term. Like if you're pitching in an election, you're pitching to voters, you know, it's it's a lot. It, you know, all the incentives are are for you to pitch, you know, like this is what the next five years look like. But, mm-hmm. you know, given the retrenchments and, and the kind of the counter revolution we've experienced over the last 40 years, just in. You know, uh, I mean, ba- I mean, globally, I mean, given the given the neoliberal revolution, what we actually need is is a more, you know, movement based kind of long term, uh, you know, thinking that is more holistic and is thinking in terms of, you know, at least, you know, 15 or 25 years and not just kind of the next election cycle. But, you know, it's the latter where, you know, uh, even if you're 
you know, a, a left uh, electoral strategist, all of the pressures are on you to kind of pursue the more short short term uh, objectives and and to you know, make the easier sell of like, hey, uh, you know, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, those will be those will be cheaper as opposed to, you know, making a more ideological argument that's like, hey, we need to decommodify huge sections of our you know, society like that is a much harder uh, that is a much harder thing to do. And it's going to take obviously much more than a single electoral victory anywhere to uh, to achieve it. Um, although ideally, you know, or, or hopefully, those things can be, uh, you know, uh, catalyzing, uh, catalyzing incidents. I mean, so, for example, if, you know, if the fates smile on us and Joe Biden doesn't run for reelection and Sanders gets another kick at the can uh, and, and somehow wins, which a lot of hypotheticals there, um, he doesn't need to do uh, he doesn't need to you know actually win Medicare for all necessarily or any of these big items. He needs to uh, he needs to he needs to catalyze, uh, you know, popular opposition to uh to the political consensus. And so that's what that's what needs to happen. And and, you know, uh, hopefully uh, left electoral victories of one kind or another, wherever they happen, um, can help uh, expedite that process. That's one thing that the right is really good at doing that the left, uh, or, you know, the, the electable left in, in North America is bad at doing, which is uh, creating creating things that remain uh, on the books, no matter who is in power. You know, like, yeah, I mean, that's the that's their biggest achievement. I mean, it's the biggest achievement of like Thatcher and Reagan was just like binding like the behavior of states and governments to these forces that operate, you know, more or less independently from them. So like, you know, states have been reduced to like even very powerful ones to like, you know, your job is to quote unquote, create good market conditions, right? It's to attract investment. If you're a political leader, you know, your job is basically to be a traveling salesperson. You're supposed to just go around and talk to like foreign business leaders so that they'll come and invest and you offer them tax incentives. And like, you know, politics in a big way, democratic politics have been uh, have been neutralized. And what we need more than ever is to bring them back. Absolutely. And I mean, I think just by way of sort of closing out, right, I think there's, you know, it's, 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 it comes down to the difference of, is it going to be brought back by, um, you know, a broadly uh, elite consensus driven form of politics where, you know, you, where eventually they are, say, forced into doing something like creating housing Ontario, for example, but only making a quarter million homes that are available uh, at non-market rents through public housing providers, like, that's the that's the kind of uh, let's say elite step back that could be built on, but it will never be really what it needs to be so long as it is in the hands of um, uh, it is in the hands of sort of political and party elites who are trying to manage society so that things are just good enough so that they can still have their dinner parties tomorrow the next week etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I have a, a a friend, a historian named Harvey Kay, who's a historian of the uh, the New Deal uh, and kind of FDR. And a point he makes again and again is that you know the thing that is uh, the thing that was novel, you know, in the United States about the FDR presidency wasn't just that you had a president who was you know uh, as a candidate was like openly running against. Uh, you know, just explicitly aligning himself, you know, against uh, Wall Street and and big business. Um, it was the fact that uh, once in office, FDR, uh, you know, there was radicalism in the country that preceded him. Right? He didn't mm-hmm. he didn't create it, and he was much more willing 
uh, you know, with some exceptions, obviously, but much more willing to uh, align himself with it and use it. And I mean, uh, all the comparisons that, you know, the absurd comparisons that were made in the first year of Joe Biden's presidency to FDR were completely missing this element, right? It's not enough to run on the, you know, on paper, this, you know, sort of like center left ish doc, you know, document that was the Democratic platform. You know, you have to align yourself with the the for, with forces in the country that are uh, antagonistic towards institutional power. And of course, Biden is very much a traditional. I mean, he's as traditional a machine politician as you can get. So of course, he wasn't going to do that. And so I think you need these two. You need these two elements. I mean, you need. You need electoral politics and you need a uh, you need a political leadership that is, uh, you know, staking out clear ground on the left and running on it and then trying to implement these things. But then you also need uh, it needs that leadership needs to you know, it can't just do what, uh, you know, so many uh, so many have done in the past, which is, you know, kind of run on the platform. And then once you're in office, you say, okay, thanks, everyone. You can put the pitchforks away, put your placards down, you know, go home. We're going to you know, we're going to, we're going to do everything now. You you have to, uh, you have to keep the militancy going and you need political power that's willing to be aligned with it. Absolutely. And I think with, with that being, with that being said, um, you know, uh, uh, Dan, you're involved with an organization such as that. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I am, you can, uh, you can join the communist party of Canada, um, and, you can read the platform and it is pretty, uh, it is pretty direct on, uh, what it wants and what it's seeking to achieve. And for me, it's been very rewarding. Mm. So, uh, do, do check out Dan's plug for his new band that he's in, uh, the communist <laughs> party of Canada, whose yeah. uh, debut uh, album has been given the coveted 7.9 by pitchfork. Um, yeah, they didn't <laughs> think we were serving the people enough. So, and also, you know, they, they they thought that the um, they thought that the euphoric wall of sound could have used a little bit more harp. They wanted um, they wanted to see more hoshism in the platform. <laughs> uh, Luke, I want to thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. Oh yeah, thanks guys, a blast. Let's do it again. And we absolutely will. And to remind people, if you want more Luke Savage, if you're pounding your table now, the podcast is winding its way to a close and saying more Luke Savage, uh, then you should check out Michael and Us, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful exploration of uh, film and uh, its its various uh, uh, impacts, meanings, etc., etc., etc. So check out Michael and Us immediately on wherever fine podcasts are found, um, and pre-order my book. Yes, and also right. pre-order uh, his book about the rising center as it is floating in the Dead Sea, the Dead Center. Um, <laughs> all that being said, yeah, thanks a lot. Don't forget to subscribe to the Bottleman. It is seven Canadian dollars uh, for a a bonus episode that will be out next week. And other than that, we will see you then. Byron. Bye. Cheers. Bye.